welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, TSRA podcast listeners. This is Daniel Enter, MD, interviewing Patrick McCarthy, uh, Executive Director of the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute at Northwestern, regarding mitral valve repair and replacement. Uh, let's start with a clinical scenario. A 52-year-old male presents to your clinic uh, with a recently noted heart murmur leading to an echo demonstrating severe mitral regurgitation. Uh, he's also been noticing progressive exercise intolerance. He is otherwise healthy. His ejection fraction is normal and a left heart cath is without obstructive lesions. By echocardiogram, there is P2 flail with anteriorly directed jet. Um, let's briefly review indications for mitral valve repair. Thanks, Dan. So um, in this patient, if he has symptoms that are related to it, it's clearly it's a class one indication. Virtually any time you have symptoms and you have valve disease, it's gonna be considered a class one indication. So that one makes it simple. If he's asymptomatic, if his ejection fraction is less than 60%, or if his LV is dilated, then that can also become a class one indication. Um, this is probably though more of an asymptomatic patient from your description of it. And then if it is a repairable valve, 95% or greater chance, and if the mortality is expected to be less than 1%, that's a class 2A indication. And so for this being the TSRA, you know, the asymptomatic patients with the straightforward lesions, that's pretty, pretty easy to do. Just make sure that when you take that on that you're really very comfortable that you're gonna be able to repair this valve if you find some surprises that they didn't appreciate on the pre-op echo. Okay, and um, would you do any additional workup beyond a transthoracic echo and a cardiac cath? So there's two things to think about. One would be a stress echo, and the second would be a transesophageal echo. In some of these people that are really very active, um, will get a stress echo, especially if they were just recently diagnosed. The reason being that if their uh, PA pressure goes up or they can only uh, exercise for four or five minutes and, and all, then uh, now you really have good objective evidence that that patient should in fact be having um, repair early. And then if the patient, if you're just not sure of the anatomy, they think it's a P2 flail, but they're not sure, then you might want a transesophageal echo um, so that you can make your final decision. Mm -hmm. Dr. McCarthy, can you outline the principles of your repair? Sure. Well, the first thing is whichever exposure that you're comfortable with. I've done right thoracotomies, hemisternotomies, all sorts of different things, and went back to doing kind of a small incision sternotomy uh, to do that. It's comfortable for the patient. If you do have any concerns about something else, like a circumflex injury and all, you can fix whatever uh, you have or a dissection. Um, and so, um, in terms of how to approach the valve, in particular for degenerative disease, job number one is to get that leaflet down to the right size. So I have in my mind, I'm trying to reestablish the normal relationship of two to one, twice the anterior leaflet and then the posterior leaflet. So if an average anterior leaflet has um, 
about 28 millimeters in a patient with degenerative MR, then I want the posterior leaflet to end up 14. And then I size the ring based on the height of the anterior leaflet. It's very confusing. You'll hear a lot of things about how to size and even not to size and just to choose the middle of the bell-shaped curve like some places and put in a ring, but you're too much risk for systolic anterior motion if you do it that way. So um, measuring commissure to commissure, trigone to trigone, it doesn't really make any sense. The valve closes anterior posteriorly, A2 towards P2. And so that's why I size just based on the height of the anterior leaflet. You can measure that with echo, or we measure it also directly. So we, we do it two ways. Mm -hmm. And um, what are some variations of mitral pathology that you typically see? For example, anterior leaflet prolapse. So in our series now, well over a thousand of these degenerative ones. So um, about 70% are just posterior leaflet. About another 15% are uh, bileaflet, and then the rest are predominantly anterior leaflet disease. Um, there have been a lot of talk, in particular in the 90s and, and early, like 10, 15 years ago, that if you have bileaflet prolapse or anterior leaflet prolapse, that the durability of the repairs wouldn't be as, as good. Um, but the more recent data really indicates that that's not necessarily true and that that group of patients can get a good result as well. And then how do you prevent systolic anterior motion? Yeah, SAM isn't that complicated, frankly. Um, you know, Dan, have you ever seen SAM? Uh, no, I've been here six years and never seen it. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. So. Um, there's a few things to keep in mind. We look at and measure by echo the C-septum, we call it, which is a coaptation point of the leaflets to the septum. If you think of patients like with hokum, where the septum is really thick, then that's a very short distance, and they get SAM. Um, the ways that you can get SAM is that if you leave the posterior leaflet too tall, that kind of pushes the anterior leaflet and the coaptation point up towards the septum. Um, the other would be if you put in a ring that is too small, then you're going to get SAM. So those are the most common. And that's why if we are measuring the anterior leaflet directly and we size according to that and we've made the posterior leaflet 2 to 1 or less than 15 millimeters, then we're not going to see SAM. Okay. And what are some additional uh, repair techniques you use beyond uh, your P2 resection and ring? So um, another fairly common lesion is patients that have commissure lesions. So they may have a flail over at P3 or at A3, uh, A1. And um, actually just doing a nice little commissure plasty over there, usually using a couple of figure of eight 4-O-Ethabon sutures, you kind of dunk in that area that was prolapsing. And then you test the valve. And uh, frequently, that's all you need. It actually, I remember hearing how that was a complicated repair many years ago, and then started doing them and saying, this is slam dunk. You're still leaving a really good amount of valve orifice, and so the patients don't end up with a big gradient and all. There's other times when somebody has like a P3 flail, however, and... Uh, and if there's normal cords that are left between the flail area and the commissure, then you can just do a little triangular resection of that P3 flail. 
There's some patients that have maybe a couple of different areas, like a P1 and P3 area. So if you want to do individual uh, resections, that's fine too. Um, there's you know, a lot of discussion about, I, I'm still kind of a classic resection guy uh, for the most part. I like it, it's very predictable. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of judgment really. You just have to be able to recognize the normal cords. Others like the artificial cords to do that. Um, Dan, you've probably seen a few re-ops that came from elsewhere that yeah. had artificial cords and they either left them too long or too short or too something. And so they're back here six months later. It's a little hard. And so uh, there's clearly people who got really good at it, uh, but there's definitely a learning curve to that. And it seems like it's more of a learning curve than it is to just plain old resection. Mm -hmm. And when do you decide to replace a valve? Um, for degenerative MR, pretty rarely. Um, like in that group of patients since... 2004, when I came here from the Cleveland Clinic, there's been 3% replaced. It's zero for patients less than 65. The ones that we have replaced have all been, say, 75 or older with very calcified leaflets. And so it's more pathology than just simple, a few ruptured cords. Um, and for that group, I, I actually don't have any real regrets. Sometimes the older patients, they get very uh, fragile cords, the remnants of the cords, and uh, the leaflets can become calcified and the subvalvular can become calcified. And the last thing you want is to do a repair in an 81-year-old like I just did this morning. And if you do the repair and then six months or a year later, they're back with recurrence. Um, so you want to make sure that you get a really good repair. And every once in a while, if you just can't be that sure at that age, just do a cord-sparing mitral replacement. Mm -hmm. um, when you do a replacement, um, any tips on the techniques? Sure. In general, in this group, and again, it's not common in this group. Most are almost always rheumatic. But um, to do a cord-sparing replacement, the key thing to keep in mind is you want to make sure that you don't leave... Uh, leaflet in the outflow tract. Um, and so what we do is it will divide the anterior leaflet um, from the mid part of A2 straight up to the base and then excise some of the mid body of the anterior leaflet. And so you've got remnants of the anterior leaflet on your left that are A1 and a part of A2 and on your right are A2 and a part of A3. And then as you put in your annular sutures, you push those all the way to the commissure, or you might even drop it down onto P1 or to P3. But whatever you do, don't leave the big, thick, billowing leaflet up there in the outflow tract because you can get obstruction uh, with an LV outflow tract uh, a gradient. Mm -hmm. And are there any other rare complications that our listeners should be aware of uh, with mitral valve repair? Uh, well, for boards, you know, of course, they're going to ask you about free wall rupture, so that's that's no surprise everyone asks about that. Um, fortunately, uh, you will hardly ever see that. Hopefully, never in your career. I've had a, a few of them over the years. Uh, and that one, just, you know, the point is just remove the valve, sew a big patch on, and then re-replace the valve and, and hope for the best. 
Uh, I guess the other thing we haven't talked about is how do you manage anterior leaflet disease and, and what do you do about patients that have just anterior or bileaflet disease. The bileaflet group are pretty easy. Let's say you have a prolapsing or flail P2. Almost all of those patients will have uh, cords in the mid-body of P2 and as you do your resection, you'll find those cords, and since they are at the length of the annulus, they are by definition normal length cords. They're exactly right. And so you do your resection, you preserve those cords, and then I transpose them up to the anterior leaflet. I use 5-O-Ethabon to do that, and it usually takes about four uh, figure of eight uh, 5-O-Ethabon sutures to put those up to the prolapsing or flail area on the anterior leaflet. Every once in a while, if you have somebody with a totally normal posterior leaflet and an anterior leaflet like A2 flail, then you'll do a very uh, localized resection of P2 and you take those normal cords and transfer them. That's called cord transfer. Um, some people think of it as in the history of medicine and I think of it as being reliable. It actually works really well. And in our uh, results, as you know, we've looked at it and it's like, well over 99% free of reoperation at 10 years. Um, the alternative would be artificial cords, of course, but as long as you've got the experience and you can uh, judge those correct. Okay. And when are you concerned about uh, possible injury to the circumflex and how would you manage that if you thought that could be the case? Yeah, so always be aware of it. At the beginning of every operation, we talk about whether the patient is left or right dominant. It's more common in the patients that are left dominant, but it doesn't mean that it can't happen in the patients that are right dominant. If you actually look at the cath film itself, you may get a suggestion of it. Um, it you know, you may see a small cirque and it, you know, heads up onto the myocardium and that's going to be a very little risk. Or you may see kind of a big cirque and it is seeming to wrap around the mitral valve. So um, what you do is as you're placing the sutures, in particular the ones over at P1, um, just always keep the, the needles up close to the leaflet. Uh, don't put them very deep have the needle sort of aiming as if it's going into the ventricle and not aiming away from uh, the annulus. And then um, just go ahead and replace the ring the way you normally would. If you do have a left dominant and you think that it is wrapping around, then you could even get it at, at the region of P2. So you just always kind of keep that one in mind. Um, that one can be subtle. I think that Truly putting a suture through or around the circumflex is pretty rare, but getting it close enough that you have a little kinking is probably not that uncommon. And then you commonly are, uh, perform other procedures like tricuspid valve repair and the maze as adjuncts. What are your main criteria here? So if somebody has atrial fib, they pretty much get a maze. So we're at 97% of the patients that have AFib before mitral surgery will treat it. Um, it's really quick and easy to do. Um, over the years, I've done cut and sew and laser and ultrasound and all sorts of stuff. And of course, bipolar radiofrequency. 
And a few years ago, I switched to cryoablation. Uh, you only need one device, so you don't have to pay for two disposables. It's very quick, it's very reliable, and there's a few tricks on how you use it, but um, not that many really. It really is pretty straightforward to create a box lesion, and then another lesion of the mitral annulus, and then we kind of look on, on the epicardial surface and we put another one on the coronary sinus. And uh, so adding a maze, the left-sided lesions, is really quick and easy to do. The only time I don't do it, the 3% is like some 30 years of rheumatic fever with a calcified atrium. And even if I returned sinus rhythm somehow, there would be no atrial systole. And so in that group of patients, I typically don't treat it. And now I use a clip, the commercial clip on the left atrial appendage on most of these patients. The tricuspid, if they have moderate TR or greater, then I'll treat it. If they have less than moderate, but in the past they had right heart failure, or if they had had moderate TR earlier, then I will tend to do it. If they have never had right heart failure, they've never had even like mild TR, and all they have is an annulus of 40 millimeters or greater, I generally will not treat it. That is in the guidelines these days is class 2A, but uh, th uh, several of us think it's probably a little too aggressive uh, to have that in there. But if they really do have T TR that's moderate or greater, you might as well just go ahead and fix it. It's quick and easy. Mm -hmm. And then um, what's your typical postoperative course and follow-up? So um, most of the patients are extubated uh, shortly after they arrive in the ICU. We shoot for about two hours. Most of these patients are pretty generally healthy with degenerative MR. Um, most of them will go upstairs the next day. Um, the big thing for post-op discharge is pain. And so right from the get-go, we work really hard to control pain with pain pumps and keep them comfortable the first day or two. Most of them don't have that much uh, pain with a sternotomy, though, of course, we all know. Um, and so uh, for young, healthy people, we'll tell them that they'll go home day three, uh, occasionally day four. Um, and so some of the older people, it takes a little longer, they may go home more like day five or so. Uh, but it really is kind of dependent upon the patient. Um, and then they typically come back at about two weeks. I get a discharge on everyone before they go home. Um, every once in a while, you'll find somebody that uh, might have a failure like about five years ago, I think, um, that a patient had perforated through the leaflet. And so before he went home, we had to take him back and, and fix the valve. Uh, but that's pretty rare. But it's good to get a baseline. And then what kind of results can we expect from a center of excellence in mitral valve repair? Well, for instance, I've done thousands of these now, literally. And so for this degenerative group, um, you know, you get pretty good at it after a little while. So recently we looked at our results and at 10 years, freedom from moderate to severe, severe was um, over 95%. It was about 98%. Freedom from reoperation at 10 years was 99.6%. So um, this is an operation that is really successful. It's very durable. Uh, eventually people will, some of them will have other cords that will elongate and they may develop disease or occasionally people will develop panis uh, over the ring and onto the leaflets. But 
Um, this is a group of patients that do really well with mitral valve repair. All right. Well, Dr. McCarthy, thank you for your insights and contributions to mitral valve repair. Thanks, Dan.